0: This is part two. We had part one last week. Basically, the format is a uh, a theology class rather than a sermon. And uh, if you missed part one, it'll be available, if not already, on the website in audio form. At the conclusion of uh, today, the uh, charts will be made available. And uh, so you can take advantage of that, because I can't spend a lot of time talking about last week, but let me say a few things. We did talk about the significance of the Trinity in our lives, how it informs the gospel, how it shapes our prayer, how it's the basis of our worship. We talked about the word person in reference to the Trinity, and I must stop for just a moment to reiterate that, because I think it's crucial. When we use the word person, speaking about ourselves or one another, we see that person, another person, as a distinct individual being with his own individualized human nature, mind, soul, as an autonomous being. However, when the word is used of the Trinity, we can't use it with that same connotation. And here's why. Why? Because the persons of the Trinity are not three distinct autonomous beings like we are when we refer to ourselves. God is one being with one nature, one mind, one will, one glory. So the persons in the Trinity must be used in a different sense. You just need to make yourselves aware of that because if you think of the persons of the Trinity as we think of each other as persons, you're starting off off base. We looked at the early heresies that prompted the uh, councils of Nicaea in 325 and Constantinople 381. We, we went over the creeds. We looked at how the Nicene Creed formalized Trinitarianism in the, uh, in the ecumenical councils. And then finally, we talked a little bit about ontology. That is, when we speak about what God is, ad intra, internal to himself, uh, that's ontologically speaking. When we speak of God ad extra, that means external to himself, we're speaking about what God does in relation to creation, the world, especially with regard to redemption and whatever. Those are technical terms, but... You just need to be aware of them because if you read anything about the Trinity, you're going to run across them, and I'll be using the terms here today. The Nicene Creed formalized the doctrine of the Trinity. There is but one God. This one God eternally subsists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each of whom is fully God. I don't think any Christian would would uh, deny that or argue with that, but the creed went a little bit further in specifying something about the relation between the three persons of the Trinity, and this is how they did it. The Father is unbegotten, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Spirit eternally proceeds from both. So we're going to talk about these personal properties here that we see in that last point. The Father is unbegotten, the Son is begotten, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. These personal properties distinguish the three and establish what is called in the literature their relations of origin ad intra, meaning internal to God Himself, speaking ontologically about His being. However, these relations are in fact eternal, spontaneous, and necessary to the very nature of being, nature and being of God. And and here's the point. God didn't will the Son and the Spirit into existence. They are of His very being. There was never a Father apart from the Son and the Spirit. They are one being together. You'll also see in the literature that personal property is expressed this way. Paternity is the unbegotten father's personal property because he and he alone is father to the son. Filiation, which comes from the Latin word for sonship, is the begotten son's personal property because he and he alone is son of the father. Procession speaking of the Spirit. And I have in parentheses there the word spiration. Spiration now is considered an archaic word. In fact, you'll only find it in theology and specifically in reference to the manner in which the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. It's the personal property of the Spirit because he and he alone proceeds from the Father and the Son. Spiration simply means breathe forth, which is the manner in which the Spirit proceeds. Turn, if you would, to John chapter 20. We'll just take a quick look at one verse that kind of gives some import to the word spiration and should influence our thinking when we think of the procession of the Spirit. John chapter 20, verse 22. And when he had said this, this is the Lord Jesus, He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them. He spirated on them, if you will. But you know, the word, the Greek word for spirit can mean breath, wind, or spirit in the personal sense. And so that's why we use that word spiration to refer to the procession of the spirit and we say he proceeds from the Father and the Son because we see here the Son breathing on them and them receiving the Spirit. Because these personal properties are, wh- are what distinguish the three, we could define the persons as subsisting relations. The persons are distinguished by their relations, relations of origin, by paternity, affiliation, and procession. Adding a little more to that, God exists essentially and actually as God the Father of the Son, as God the Son of the Father, and as God the Holy Spirit who proceeds from them both. That statement can be fleshed out by going a step further and saying that God has no concrete existence Apart from his threefold subsistence in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. I I hope you see the inference there. Sometimes people think that you have the Godhead, you have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and then behind the three persons, there is something else of God that is there, behind or above or beyond the three. But there's not there's nothing left over of god beyond the father the son and the spirit he has no concrete existence apart from his threefold personal subsistence it's an amazing thought but we keep we need to keep that kind of thinking in our heads while each divine person is really distinct from the others on the basis of his personal property which we've just talked about Each divine person is identical with the self-existent being and essence of the one true God. As Scott Swain put it one time, God is three persons all the way down. There's nothing beyond the three persons in the Godhead. Now, the eternal relations between the persons, ad intra, Ontologically speaking, about God within Himself, the eternal relations are reflected in the Trinity's mission in the economy, in the world, add extra, what He does in the world. Who He is is reflected in what He does. Therefore, we may say that it was fitting. For the unbegotten Father to send the begotten Son into the world to accomplish redemption. It's fitting when you think about it. It was fitting for the Spirit who proceeds or literally is breathed forth from the Father and the Son to be sent to apply redemption and sanctify God's people. And in thinking of the Trinity and how the Trinity operates in the world... There's a, there's a point that needs to be made that sometimes we don't really think about, but I think it's important. And that is the doctrine of inseparable operations. And we must speak about this in regard to the Trinity, because what we are saying is that no one person of the Trinity acts independently of the others. In God's external works of creation, providence, redemption, Our triune God is undivided. In every work or operation of God, the three persons of the Trinity, think of who our God now is, one being, the three persons of the Trinity having one mind, one will, participate and work together inseparably. The unity of the three persons in the external works of the Trinity, ad extra, stems from the unity and of being in essence of the triune God in eternity, speaking ad intra. Now, while the external works of the Trinity are undivided, specific works may be predicated of one person or another in Scripture. This, this is something that you will see. It's something that... Uh, Theology has termed completely compatible with the idea of inseparable operations. For example, in scripture, sometimes we see the Father as the focal point when it's speaking of creation. There's a verse reference there. Sometimes we see the Son spoken of as the focal point in God's redemption. And we see the Holy Spirit as the focal point In sanctification. But you can also find in scripture. Verses that. For example. Attribute the spirit of God. With giving life. And breath. To people. Creating people. For example Job 33.4 says. The spirit of God has made me. That is created me. And the breath of the almighty. Gives me life. There's the Spirit in creation. Psalm 33, 6 is another one. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. So there, again, we see the word in creation. And we see the breath of God in creation. When we see these things, we must still remember, however, that it is the one triune God that creates redeems and sanctifies a quote from Augustine to sum up this topic he put it this way as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are inseparable so do they work inseparably even though we see in scripture either one of the persons or another can be predicated of specific operation But we must understand that they never work at odds with each other. The three persons are never at odds in anything. Now, we need to balance unity and diversity. If you overemphasize God's oneness, then you end up saying something like the three persons are simply three manifestations of a single divine person. That is the essence of modalism. And sometimes we can fall into that trap of thinking of God as a single person and the Father, Son, and the Spirit just being merely manifestations of this one person God. But that's not true. We have overemphasized the oneness to the exclusion of the personal reality of the three. If you overemphasize the oneness, it's to the detriment of the three. On the other hand, if you overemphasize the threeness, in other words, applying the word person to the three persons of the Trinity and thinking of them as being three distinct beings that are all God, what do you have? Three gods. Or in some in some views, at least a senior God and, and uh, two lesser gods which would be Arianism and Monarchianism, But I suspect that this is how the Muslims think of us. They think we are saying that we have three gods and somehow we're still calling them one god. They, they can't understand it. But it's not a contradiction because God is one in one sense and three in another sense. If we are saying that God is one in one sense and three in the same sense, that's a contradiction. But they are not three in the same sense that they are one. Hence, the Trinity avoids contradiction. The truth of the Nicene Creed precludes both of these extremes. And that's the value and beauty of the early creeds. Now, let me just say that the early creeds certainly are not verbally inspired or infallible like Scripture. Many of us have an aversion to the use of the creeds for, for that simple matter. We think somehow we're elevating the creeds above Scripture. But that's not really the case. They are to be recognized and endorsed only insofar as they agree with Scripture. Scripture. Which was the consensus of the early church fathers in formulating the creeds. That's why we may read the creeds and say, well, they haven't really gone far enough. They haven't really answered all my questions. But the father said, I can't, we can't go further than to distinguish the persons by their relations of origin, the unbegotten, the eternally begotten, and the one proceeding from both. That's how we distinguish them. If we go further, we're into speculation. And so the creeds can can in essence be looked at as guardrails, if you will. If you're speculating about the Trinity or conceiving ideas about the Trinity, you should see these creeds as guardrails. And if you're saying something that goes beyond the creeds, it's like stepping over the guardrail at the side of the Grand Canyon. You must be very careful. Be very careful if you're going to step beyond what the creeds say. For example, if you were to say that God the Son is eternally subordinate to the Father, you have gone beyond the creeds. The Lord Jesus was certainly subordinate to the Father in his incarnation, in his ministry as the God-man. But ad intra, when you say eternally subordinate, you're saying ad intra, internal to the very being of God, the second person is subordinate to the first. That's not true. You have stepped over the guardrails and into a mess of trouble, which was evidenced by the flurry back in 2016 about the doctrine of the Trinity versus what those who held to... uh, uh, eternal subordination of the Son, we're maintaining. They maintain that the relation between the persons of the Trinity ad intra is a pattern that we can use in defining the relations between husband and wife and the family. But that's, but that's not right. Eternally, the Son is not subordinate. So you can't say... They were wanting to say he's eternally subordinate so that they can say that's the pattern for the wife, subordinate. The Trinity doesn't teach that. They were teaching that. Be advised. Also, it's hard to believe, in my way of thinking at least, that God would allow an assembly of bishops representing virtually all of Christendom at the time to conclude erroneous teaching. I believe we have to give some note to the providential care of the church that God provides. We don't doubt the doctrine of, the, we don't doubt the veracity and the completeness of the New Testament canon, do we? It's interesting, at this same period of time, there were arguments over what books to include in the New Testament. In this same century, and yet god providentially brought about what he wanted to be included in the canon for example uh, i believe it was athanasius bishop of alexandria in an easter letter gave list of exactly the same books that would formerly become the new testament and i'm asking you to consider that that same providential care of god in bringing together the new testament was also at work guiding the results of this council so that they did not lay down as formal declaration any error. We now turn to some specific doctrinal considerations regarding Jesus Christ, the God-man. The early heresies specifically questioned the person of Jesus Christ in relation to God, and we saw that last week. Therefore, the clarification of the doctrines of the Trinity and Christology, they go hand in hand. You can't really study the Christology without getting into the Trinity, and you can't really study the Trinity without getting into the doctrine of Christ. So let's talk a little bit about that. In the Incarnation, the Word, the Eternal Son of God, became flesh and dwelt among us, right? John one fourteen. But that is a phenomenal statement. Some would regard the incarnation itself as perhaps the greatest work of God in history, because for one reason, we can't really fathom it completely. And to borrow a phrase from the Puritan Thomas Goodwin, heaven kissed earth when God became man. The son of God took on a human nature that was created and conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. In other words, the divine Son of God took to himself a human nature and was born Jesus, the Christ, the God-man. That's what the Incarnation is about. Aberrant teachings arose regarding the person of Christ contrary to the Orthodox understanding at that time. This led to the Council of Chalcedon in 451 A.D., which was attended by 520 bishops and their representatives invited from all of Christendom. Now the purpose of the Chalcedonian Creed was to formalize Orthodox doctrine to put down some of these aberrant teachings regarding the Incarnation, what happened there, and the person of Christ as opposed to the person of the Son of God. In doing so, it precluded two kind of weird teachings. You don't need to remember these names, but Eutychianism, for example, held that Christ had only one nature, a mixture of the human and divine. Therefore, something new, something, some kind of mixture of the two, so that he still only had one nature. Nestorianism, at the opposite extreme maintain that two persons, one divine and one human, inhabited the one body of Jesus Christ. Two persons in one body. Eutitianism, only one nature. Not a human nature and a divine nature, but only one fused nature. So with those kind of things in mind, I would like for us to read The Chalcedonian Creed of 451. I've left out a couple of phrases so I can get it on two charts. But the meat of the the creed is still here. We then, following the Holy Fathers, and and as we read through this, see if you can pick out the points they're making uh, that are relevant to what we've just said. We then, following the Holy Fathers, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and our salvation born of the Virgin Mary according to the manhood one in the same Christ Son, Lord only begotten to be acknowledged in two natures these two natures being united inconfusably unchangeably indivisibly inseparably they went to Extremes to try and make this point. The distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence. Not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same son, only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Chalcedonian Creed has been held by virtually all Christendom since then. Now I'm going to introduce a phrase here in case you're unfamiliar with it, and that's the hypostatic union. This union of two natures, one divine and one human in the person of Jesus Christ, is called the hypostatic union. It comes from the Greek word hypostasis, which came to mean an individual reality or an individual person. The technical term hypostatic union in Christology is used to describe the union of Christ's humanity and divinity in one hypostasis or in one person. And, and here's, we're getting to the edge of our understanding. In the incarnation, the divine nature of the Son was forever joined to the human nature of man in the God-man Jesus Christ. He is not half God and half man. He is 100% God and 100% man. It's, It's hard to comprehend. The second person of the Trinity remains one person but now has two natures, human and divine, which remain distinct in the one person, Jesus Christ. That is essential doctrine. It may not be easy to understand, but it's essential that we acknowledge that. Now, some people might have the question, does this imply that in the incarnation God changed? Isn't God immutable? How can the second person of the Trinity take on a human nature and not change? I think that's a good question. I think it's something we need to think about. But if you remember last week we talked about the basic doctrine of God in a number of boxes saying that was the foundation for the development of the Trinity It's also the foundation for understanding the person of Christ. And in those basic doctrines of God, He is immutable. He can't change. As to Jesus' divine nature, we we need to make this compatible with His immutability. As to Jesus' divine nature, He is unchanging. As to His human nature, He's changeable. As God, Jesus is unchangeable, infinite, ever supreme in every way. He remains God. He remains God and his essence and nature are not changed in the incarnation. But as to his human nature, he is changeable. He's subject to weakness. He's able to suffer and able to die. Of course, his mortality ended with his exaltation, but nevertheless, he was able to die in his human nature. He is simultaneously divine and human. He is the God-man. The Son of God did not change his nature at the incarnation. God did not change The divine nature did not blend or fuse with the human nature. That would have required a change in God. Rather, the divine nature resides with the human nature in the person of Christ. The incarnation means that Jesus can lay claim to both his divine nature and his human nature. In John 17, 5, you'll remember, Jesus prays to the Father. Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Glorify me in your presence with the glory I once had. Does that imply that that glory that he once had, he no longer had? I don't think so. Both of Jesus' natures are evident In this request. He refers to his pre-existence with God. In which he has always shared the Father's glory. Which is evidence of his divine nature. But he asks now to be glorified with that same glory as Christ. The God-man. The God-man he is asking. I want him to have the same glory I had with you as the Son. In fact, you could argue that that is the purpose of God in the world, is to glorify Jesus Christ, the God-man. His glory as the God-man makes everything else that he did subservient to it. Our salvation... Should be viewed as subservient to the Father's will to exalt Christ and glorify Him as the God-man. It, it's tremendous. Theology should lead us to doxology. When we elevate our gaze in faith to the character of God and come to know Him better by studying the scriptures, taking advantage of the early creeds, I I, I think we can see God in in a new manner, in an extended manner, which takes us to our knees, to be honestly, So to sum up that thought, God must be immutable since he cannot degrade into a worse state. He's the perfect being, right? He cannot degrade into a worse state and he cannot improve to a better state. He is ever perfect and God cannot be otherwise. Perfection is an absolute and it is impossible for him to become more perfect. So any change in God would either mean before that change he was not perfect or after that change he was not perfect. But if he's been perfect and always has been perfect and always will be perfect, he can't change. He can't change it in his being, his nature, his essence, and so forth. By contrast, human nature lacks infinite capacities. A human is finite and mutable and always has room for change and improvement. So it was with Jesus' human nature which explains the fact that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God. Some think that Jesus was born in the manger with all he needed and all he needed to know as the man Christ Jesus, as the baby Christ Jesus. I'm sure that as he grew, he had to ask his earthly father, what tool is this that you're using to work on that wood? And his father taught him. And as he grew, he began, he learned the language and began to study the scriptures. And as he progressed through his life, his self-awareness grew. But he grew as a human being in his human nature as Christ Jesus. The hypostatic union simply stated is that God is one in being, essence, and nature. Yet the second person of the Trinity, now and forevermore, has two natures, divine and human. So let me ask you another question. Does Jesus Christ have one will or two wills? I won't ask you to answer. I expect the answer would not be unanimous. So let's think about that. In Hebrews 2.17, it says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest and make propitiation for the sins of the people. Right? Gregory of Nazianzus, around 375 A.D., made this comment in, in one of his orations. That which Christ has not assumed, he has not healed. Think about what he's saying. That humanity which Christ has not taken to himself, he has not healed. Maximus the Confessor, sometime later, recognized that sin entered the world through human will. Right? At the fall. And he reckoned that in accordance with Gregory, the son must have assumed a human will along with his humanity in order to redeem it. One of the major things we need redeemed is our will. So Christ must have assumed a human will with his human nature. Therefore, the answer to the question is he has two wills, a divine will according to his divine nature and a human will according to his human nature. Uh, you don't need to remember this word, diethelitism. It just means two wills. And it was formally adopted as uh, orthodox doctrine at the Third Council of Constantinople into what logic would have been called one will theology. In his one person, Jesus Christ has two wills which correspond to his two natures. Therefore, the will is properly viewed as a property of one's nature, not of one's person. In other words, Christ is one person, but he has two natures, and he has two wills. Therefore, will is associated with the nature, not the person. Just as in the Godhead. There are three persons, but there are not three wills, because God is one being. This is consistent with scripture where we see that there are distinctions made between the wills of the Father and Christ during his early ministry. Will is to be regarded as the property of nature, not person, as I just said. Two-will Christology is a legitimate extrapolation of the Chalcedonian Creed and has been held by the vast majority of Christians down through the ages. Jesus Christ, the God-man, acts according to both natures. The person acts. The natures don't act. It is the person who acts. Christ's authoritative works, therefore, such as forgiving sins, the ability to have a substitutionary death, are possible because of his divine nature. Yet his works of ministry were from his manhood, In the power of the Holy Spirit. Since both natures are united in one person. His works are that of the God-man. Not simply of a man. Because it is the person who acts. Not the nature. Acknowledging the two natures solves a number of exegetical problems in my way of thinking. In Matthew 26, 39, for example, the Lord says, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Here we see a distinction in wills. But God only has one will. Therefore, what we see here is that Jesus willed humanly in obedience to the Father all that he willed divinely with the Father and the Holy Spirit for our salvation. That's how you understand that scripture. The Son of God never has a will in any way could be opposed to the Father. In fact, Jesus' human nature didn't have a will that was opposed, but he had a will that he had to yield in obedience. He learned obedience, the scriptures say. His obedience here is obedience arising out of a love of God with his human heart, soul, mind, and strength? Therefore, not my will but thine be done. He is spoken here according to his human nature, his humanity. But is the person who spoke, not the nature. One more, Mark 13, 32. But concerning the day or that hour. No one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, we know that God knows everything. We know that in his divinity, Jesus Christ knows everything, and certainly would know that hour. So, what's he saying here? In his divinity he certainly would know. In his humanity as the son of man, which I take the word son here to actually be referring to the son of man, to himself as the God-man, as the mediator, as the Christ, in his human nature would not necessarily know. Thus he spoke here according to his human nature. The human nature assumed in the incarnation consisted of both a human body and a rational soul, mind, and spirit. He assumed the frailties and infirmities of mankind, yet without sin. It's interesting. Disease can be attributed to the fall, can it not? Disease can be attributed to sin. We never see any place in scripture where Jesus suffered any disease. That's consistent. Yet he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, which is consistent with the true human nature. Jesus must be understood as he is God. He must be understood as he is man. He must be understood as he is the God man. As God, he is equal with the Father and the Spirit. As man, he is and always will be subordinate to the Father. As man. As mediator, the God-man intercedes on behalf of God's people. The person acts, not the nature's. Therefore, the value of Christ's life and death is infinite because of the infinite value of his person. He died as a man, but it was the person who died. And the infinite value of his person is what God used to save us from our sins. Unbelievable. In summary, let me just read a quote from Alexander Hodges' Outlines of Theology. It's an old book, but a classic. In the Godhead, there is but one substance, one intelligence, one will, etc. And yet three persons eternally coexist of that one essence and exercise that one intelligence and one will, etc. In Christ, on the contrary, there are two spirits, two intelligences, two wills, and yet all the while... One indivisible person. We cannot fully comprehend it, but we must look into the scriptures and study and find new ways to see God in all his glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, light of the world, shine upon our minds and hearts. Spirit of truth, guide us into all truth. Heavenly Father, sanctify us through thy truth and make us wise unto salvation. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.